I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Little Atoms on Resonance 104.4 FM, a live talk show about ideas and culture with an emphasis on ideas of the Enlightenment. Little Atoms is presented by Neil Denny, Podrick Reedy, Richard Sanderson and Becky Hogg, as well as regular guest presenters. Little Atoms actively promotes science, freedom of expression, scepticism and secular humanism. Our guests bring ideas that are challenging, sometimes controversial, often polemical, but always interesting. Hi, welcome to another Little Atoms. Tonight, the 200th edition, and it's a pleasure to be joined by Baron Rees of Ludlow, Martin Rees. Martin Rees is Professor of Cosmology and Astrophysics and Master of Trinity College at the University of Cambridge. He was the President of the Royal Society until 2010 and is the Astronomer Royal. A member of the House of Lords, he is a Foreign Associate of the National Academy of Sciences and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and is an Honorary Member of the Russian Academy of Science. His awards include the Gold Medal of the Royal Astronomy Society, the Einstein Award of the World Cultural Council and the Crawford Prize. He was the recipient of the 2011 Templeton Prize. Martin's latest book is From Here to Infinity, Scientific Horizons, which expands on his 2010 BBC Radio 4 Reed Lectures. Martin, thank you for joining us on Little Atoms for this interview. Well, it's good to be on the programme, especially on this anniversary edition. I mentioned that you're the Astronomer Royal, and you follow uh, numerous illustrious footsteps in that position, people like Edmund Halley and Martin Ryle and George Airy. What do you actually do? Well, it's one of my less arduous jobs, because it's just uh, an honorary title now. But the title goes back to 1675, when the Royal Observatory was founded. That's right, and uh, Flamsteed was the director of that observatory. And until about 50 years ago, the title was held by the directors of the Greenwich Observatory. But at about that time, uh, astronomy moved to clearer skies abroad, and the Greenwich Observatory became essentially a museum, and the title of Astronomer Royal was then given to a senior academic. And uh, Martin Ryle, who you just mentioned, the great radio astronomer, was the mm-hmm. first person to hold the title, while being uh, not at Greenwich, but being, in his case, a professor at Cambridge. And uh, so it's just an honorary title which I hold as a senior academic. So there's no actual responsibilities? Not at all, no. No horoscopes <laughs> to give or anything like that, no. I want us to look at some of the themes that you covered in, the, in, in this book and in the reflections. There are four lectures that you've expanded upon in this book. We'll, we'll sort of work through them in order. And the, the first lecture was called The Scientific Citizen. And I wonder if you could perhaps explain what that concept means briefly. Yes, I should perhaps say that these BBC lectures were, of course, for a worldwide 
audience listening to BBC, but they were each given to a live audience in a different place. And in planning what to say in each of the four lectures, I had to pay some regard to where I was giving the lecture and what the live audience would be. And the first of the lectures was actually given in uh, one of the BBC Broadcasting House lecture theatres, and the audience, therefore, was uh, media people and a few politicians. And I thought it was appropriate for that audience to talk about uh, the role of science and the media and science and the public and science and politics. So I talked about how the scientists should explain their work to the public, what some of the issues were, and the problems of advising politicians, especially when the science is at certain etc. Mm-hmm. You look in this, in this lecture on the, the effect of science on a wider culture and despite, or perhaps even because of, the speed that technology moves at now, do you think as a culture we've lost a wider understanding of science? Well I'm certainly keen to emphasise that science is not only crucial to our technology and has changed everyone's lives, but it is also part of our culture. Indeed I like to say that science is the only truly global culture mm-hmm. Protons and proteins are the same all over the world. Culture that spans all nations and all faiths. And indeed, I think one is culturally deprived not to understand the basic ideas of science, Darwinian evolution, a bit of astronomy and what atoms are, etc. So I see science as being part of everyone's culture and should be part of everyone's education. But of course, it is also the uh, bedrock for much of modern technology. And another reason why I think it's important that the public should have some feel for science is that many of the decisions which our politicians have to make, decisions on uh, energy, health, what we do about climate change and other areas, have a scientific dimension to them. Mm -hmm. And these decisions should not be made just by scientists, because scientists are no wiser than anyone else when they get outside their own domain, but they should be made in the knowledge of what the scientific understanding is, what scientists know and what they don't yet know. And therefore it's very important for two things to happen. The first is that politicians uh, should uh, take good scientific advice and that there should be good scientists advising the civil servants and politicians. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that everyone uh, who is a voter uh, ought to have at least some understanding of science. And that's why science education is important not just for those who are going to be scientists, but for everyone. Because unless everyone knows the difference between a proton and a protein and knows a bit about the problems of providing energy for the world and feeding the world, then public debates about these very important questions won't get above the level of slogans Mm -hmm. and the public won't really have a proper say. So I think in politics today, uh, so many questions involve understanding a little bit of science. And it's for that reason, as well as because it's interesting and part of our culture, that I think science education is important for everyone. It is obviously more and more important as we go into the modern age and we face challenges that, that science underpins the thinking of politicians. But to what extent? You, there's a wonderful quote in one of the lectures where you, you quote Winston Churchill. I wonder if you could remember that quote. Oh, well, he used to say science should be on tap but not on top. And that was a, perhaps a slightly cynical way to say mm-hmm. it. But I think... That was right in the sense that it's the politicians on behalf of the public who make the final decisions about how science is applied. But it's misleading because that implies that the uh, scientists are sort of subservient. And I think the scientists should be trying to argue very strongly what the important problems are. So the scientists shouldn't just respond to questions of politicians. They should do all they can to ensure that politicians 
pay due regard to the scientific issues. And there's a especially important problem here, which is that politicians naturally have short-term concerns, certainly concerns before the next election rather than after, and there's therefore a tendency for the urgent to trump the important. And that's a contrast with many of the issues which scientists should be concerned about, Mm -hmm. feeding the world, dealing with infectious diseases, dealing with all the other problems, where you need to plan long-term. And so I think what a scientific advisor should do is um, to be on tap indeed, but to be banging on to their political masters about the importance of these long-term issues. And if we think of the UK, uh, then we have decisions being made at the moment about whether we should have more nuclear power stations, can we get all the energy renewables, and what should we do to ensure there's enough food for the rest of the world as well as for us. All these are questions where we need long-term planning. To build a power station takes at least 10 years, and it has a lifetime of 30 years, so decisions being made now are going to have an effect lasting until 2050 and beyond. And those are just the kinds of decisions which politicians tend to leave on the back burner if they're worried about something urgent. And I think scientists, whether they're in government or outside, need to emphasise that those decisions, though long-term, are important and can't be put off. What about that wider culture, though? What about the communication of of the ideas of science and new technological advances to a wider public? I mean, to what extent do you think scientists are or are not fulfilling their responsibilities in... Well, obviously they have a responsibility in that many of them are employed by the taxpayer Mm -hmm. and they need to give some account of themselves. Um, But I think for many of us it is um, pleasurable to engage with the wide public, certainly uh, being myself someone who works in a science that's remote from everyday applications. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm very glad that what I do is clearly of interest to a wider public. Astronomy has a very wide following, just as natural history does, and I'd be less happy in my work if I could only talk to a few fellow specialists about it. So I think uh, many scientists enjoy the fact that their work is of interest to a wide public. And I think that although the details of our work are often rather arcane and mathematical and involve lots of jargon, it is possible, in most cases, to explain the essence of what we're doing in a manner that can be understood by a non-specialist. It's hard sometimes. We have to avoid mathematics, we have to avoid jargon, we have to avoid the use of familiar words in unfamiliar contexts, and those are challenges. But I think in general it is possible to do this, and uh, that's important in order to uh, satisfy the public curiosity about the big questions of science, but also it's important if the public is to uh, understand what the issues are in deciding whether we need nuclear power and whether we can depend on wind energy and all that. There's, in the last ten years or so, been a couple of really classic examples of where the communication of science to the public has has gone wrong in some respects. And I'm I'm thinking of GM crops and the MMR debacle in in particular. Do you think these are things we've learned from? I hope we have. In the case of GM crops, what went wrong was that the... uh, scientists didn't engage with the public soon enough. Mm -hmm. What happened was that the public became aware of the issue when opinion was already polarised between the commercial interests, especially Monsanto, on the one side and environmental campaigners on the other. And the opinion was polarised, and it would have been better if the scientists had engaged upstream 
and I think that's a lesson that has been learned. I think uh, in the case of uh, embryo research, for instance, and also the case of nanotechnology, these scientists have tried to uh, uh, explain to the media and to politicians what the forthcoming issues might be before uh, commercial interests get in. And this has, I think, led, in particular in the case of stem cell research, to a rather good regulatory framework in this country. Mm-hmm. And I think in nanotechnology it will, it will help. So I think that, that's the case where we have lessons. In the case of MMR, um, the issue was rather different. What happened there was that there was uh, one, in retrospect, rather maverick scientist who made these claims. And the media, of course, likes a controversy. Mm-hmm. And uh, even if uh, there's an overwhelming consensus in favour of one view and only one or two take an opposite view, the uh, uh, media always like to present this as a, uh, a debate just like if you're a fight promoter and you, you want to promote your, ch- your uh, champion, you want to have a decent challenger to make it a good fight, as it were. And that's the way the media looks. And the result of that was that uh, this concern about MMR got really exaggerated traction in the media. And that was really serious, because it doesn't really matter if the public has misleading ideas about uh, astronomy or cosmology, but it does matter... It's a matter of life, of life and death in principle if they have uh, misperceptions about the best advice which medical science can give. And that's why that was a very serious issue where I think the media has quite a bit to answer for. Um, but I think there's a third type of question which is the hardest, which is when the science is genuinely very uncertain. In the case of uh, MMR, uh, most people thought the science was fairly well established. But uh, going back a bit further, um, mad cow disease, Mm -hmm. BSE, that was a case when uh, this disease uh, emerged um, in cows and the scientists then didn't really know what the risk to humans was. Um, Their first guess was that it was like scrapie in sheep, which had been endemic for 200 years with no damage um, and therefore it would have no impact. That was a sensible first guess, but it was of course wrong. Mm And then they realised that there was a possible threat to humans um, and, of course, they didn't know how serious that was. And then perhaps they went to the other extreme of perhaps overreacting. But that's an example where uh, politicians had to make some decisions on the basis of advice from hopefully the most qualified experts. But even those experts uh, didn't really know what the situation was. And I think uh, giving advice to politicians when even the experts are uncertain is especially difficult, and a special responsibility on whoever the scientific advisors are. The next lecture in the series, um, the title is Surviving the Century. Um, A few years ago you published a book entitled Our Final Century. Mm -hmm. Our Final Century, question mark, which somehow lost its question mark between between writing it and publication. Let's talk about some of the challenges that we face over the next century. Um, You've already mentioned the idea of climate change. I'd like to talk a little bit about, Mm. do do you think there is more. There does seem to be dragging of feet on, on the issue of climate change. I mean, do you think there is more that the government could be doing? Well, I think, going back to my book, I uh, addressed two different kinds of threat. One was the uh, threat due to what we are doing collectively mm-hmm. to the environment, because there are more human beings on this planet, and each of them has a bigger footprint, as it were. Um, and uh, climate change is a long-term consequence of this, the burning of fossil fuels, and in the long term it could have a really serious effect 
in changing climate patterns around the world. The difficulty of uh, responding to this challenge is, firstly, that the science is uh, uncertain. Um, we can confidently say that the world will be warmer by 2050. We can't say how much warmer because of uncertainties in the physics of clouds, etc. Um, and the other problem, apart from the fact that the downside is very far in the future by political horizon standards, is that any effective action to reduce the risk of damaging climate change has to be international because it's not like kind of pollution where the downside is felt near where the emission mm -hmm. occurs. Uh, the effect of um, fossil fuel burning in this country is no worse here than in Australia and vice versa. And so the problem of uh, action to combat climate change is not only it's long-term and uncertain, but that to be effective action has to be global or at least broadly international. And not surprisingly, uh, it's therefore been very hard to have effective action. I mean, my personal view is that uh, it is rightly high on the agenda because despite the uncertainty, there is a serious... Um, risk on the basis of present understanding mm -hmm. of climate change that would be seriously disruptive in the second half of this century. But you say you say uncertainty, but we should clarify because this is something that gets people hot under the collar. I mean, there are mm. uncontroversible, pretty much, you know, there's no controversy in, in terms of the fact that you know, CO2 is heating up the atmosphere. Well, there's, there's, there's no controversy that CO2 concentrations are rising and are now higher than they've been mm -hmm. for a million years, and that rises due to burning of fossil fuels, and that uh, that carbon dioxide will in itself raise the average temperatures by one degree or so if the CO2 concentration doubles. But the biggest uncertainty is the sort of uh, um, amplifier effect, if there is one, due to water vapour, etc. And that's why the IPCC projections are uh, within a certain range. And if they're at the lower end of the range, then it's not so catastrophic for the next 50 years, whereas if they're at the high end of the range, then we already may be uh, in serious trouble within 50 years with the possibility of runaway effects. And so I would say that the, uh, the case for uh, responding to these concerns is to avoid the worst possible outcome. And given the political difficulty, I think the top priority should therefore be to uh, more urgently do the kind of things that we should be doing anyway, like um, economising the energy by heating buildings better, um, being more economical in our burning of fuels, and prioritising the development of clean energy sources which will replace oil. So I think those are things which, uh, even if you didn't have any awareness of climate change, the world ought to do in the long run. And I think to push on with those more urgently is something which uh, we should be doing anyway, and the concern of climate change is an extra motive. And incidentally, for us in the UK, it would be to our advantage to get a lead in some of these technologies. And another thing which I mentioned briefly is that if we haven't done anything globally to reduce carbon emissions, and if, say, 20 or 30 years from now, it's clear that we are on one of the uh, steeply rising trajectories in the range that the IPCC uh, reports uh, envisage, uh, then there might be pressure for some sort of panic measures, like what's called geoengineering, to mm -hmm. um, put uh, aerosols or dust in the upper atmosphere to uh, um, compensate for the warming effect. And if that were to be done, then it would obviously lead to all kinds of political uncertainties because different countries would want to turn down the thermos at different mm -hmm. amounts. And also, it would be uh, committing us to go on doing it because if we've been doing uh, geoengineering 
but going on burning fossil fuels, then were we ever to stop the geoengineering, then there'd clearly be a much more sudden rise in temperature, which could be even more damaging. Uh, so I think uh, geoengineering, although feasible in principle, is very much the second best. One of the issues with that, of course, is that I mean the technological capabilities are really there now for a country to decide arbitrarily to do that, which would obviously be, be an issue. And one of the, the other major issues in the, in the book, Our Final Century, is the idea of, you know, because of technological advances, there's more chance that a person or a individual, you raise the concept of, you know, the, the, the global village will have its village idiots, mm-hmm. that somebody yes. could wreak a massive amount of havoc that wasn't necessarily possible yes. in the past. Well, that's right. I mean, in, in, that, in that book, and uh, it's updated in this new book, I, I uh, highlighted the problems which we are posing collectively because of the great impact on the planet. But the other class of problems you've just mentioned is that uh, technology empowers individuals and small groups so that uh, an individual or small group could indeed have uh, a global impact uh, because we live in a more interconnected world and uh, we are aware of the sensitivity of uh, computer networks, one which have air traffic controller, financial system and just-in-time delivery systems depend, and that makes us vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And also another vulnerability, obviously, is the misuse of uh, genetic technology um, to uh, create viruses and things of that kind. So the greater empowerment which uh, advancing science gives to individuals offers great opportunities, but it also opens up new risks. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny, and I'm talking to Martin Rees, and we're talking in Maine about his book From Here to Eternity, Scientific Horizons. Let's have a look at one other of the, um, of the, of the two lectures in the book, and this one's you know, quite conceptual in, in scope, and, and this is titled What We'll Never Know. Um, strikes me as a little pessimistic. Are, are there things you think that will always be beyond the wit of science? Well, I think science is an unending quest. Science is not going to grind to a halt. Some areas advance fast, uh, others languish for a bit and then advance. And I think it is clear that uh, as science advances, many of the key questions which puzzled us in the past get settled. If I look at my own subject, most of the questions we debated in cosmology when I was a student have now been settled, and we're now addressing questions that couldn't even have been posed back then. So that's an example of a science which has advanced tremendously uh, due primarily to advances in uh, experiments, observations, and computing power, etc. So science is advancing. There are going to be some constraints, obviously, because uh, resources limit how large the instruments we can make will ever be, etc. But in fact, in that, this lecture, which was interesting, the only one of my four lectures given to a many scientific audience, I did speculate a bit about whether there were going to be any uh, limits to the kind of scientific knowledge that we could ever achieve. And um, I think we should be open-minded about that, but when you ask me what these limits are, I'm going to say that I don't know, because to take another example, uh, um, a chimpanzee can't understand quantum theory. But it's not that a chimpanzee is struggling hard to understand quantum theory and can't quite make it. Uh, it's that it's not aware that there is such a problem. And likewise, there may be some aspect of reality which we humans aren't aware of, which uh, may be important. Mm -hmm. They may have to await post-humans, as it were. I don't think we're going to run out of problems to solve, uh, but there are some problems like that that we may never be aware of. So 
our understanding of physical reality may always in some sense be limited by the capacity of our brains. We can be helped by uh, computers and they're going to advance very fast, but there may be some things that we, we can't. But that leads to another point which I made in the lecture, which is that one important message which astronomy gives to general culture is an awareness of a long-term future. What I had in mind here is that uh, most uh, educated people um, outside places like uh, Kansas are aware of the four billion years of evolution which has led from the first life to human beings. But even most people aware of that tend to feel that we humans are somehow the end point or the culmination. No astronomer can really believe that because we know that the uh, sun is less than halfway through its life and the universe has a possibly infinite future ahead of it. So post-human evolution mm -hmm. here on Earth and far beyond is going to be uh, just as marvellous as the evolution has led from protozoa to us. And so uh, to talk about post-humans with possibly greater intellectual powers than us uh, is not crazy. I think it's inevitable as to whether they will be organic or whether they will be uh, silicon machines. We don't know. But certainly the idea that uh, there can be steps beyond human intellect is, I think, not a crazy one. And therefore we should be open-minded about whether there are things that... Uh, they will understand when they find string theory a doddle, as it were, or whether there are some problems that uh, are going to be always elusive. Perhaps let's look a little at some of the major scientific challenges within the limits of what we can know mm -hmm. that we'll be tackling in the near future, do you think? And, and perhaps I will bring in a little strand of the, um, of the fourth lecture here, because you're talking that a little bit about the shifting sort of power base of scientific research and how... Uh, places like India and China, for instance, are right. taking more of a more of a lead, despite the fact that the, you know the world is more connected via the internet and, mm -hmm. and things that it than it ever was. There is definitely definitely a shift over to places like India and China, and so I, I wonder what what do you think? Perhaps if I can ask you to speculate, mm -hmm. would be the you know the major areas of interest in the next century. Yes. Well, first, first thing to say, as you already mentioned, is that far more people will participate in the scientific enterprise. Not only are there going to be the growing populations of the Far East, uh, but far more people are empowered by the internet, etc., uh, to be able to actively participate in science. And one of the most encouraging developments is the advent of participatory science, where the public can actually... Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Engage in modern science in the same way that uh, in the 19th century amateur botanists could engage with science. Now it's possible through the internet for anyone to have access to huge data sets and to contribute and uh, to examples like Galaxy Zoo and uh, protein folding mm-hmm. programs where everyone can participate. So we can expect that there'll be more people involved in science. Um, as to what the emphasis will be, uh, of course, uh, the rate at which a subject advances does depend on whether it's prioritised and whether people are fascinated by it, whether it's funded, etc. Uh, but I think we can confidently say that the application of genetics, which of course is a subject that started in the 1950s um, with uh, the double helix, Watson and Crick, those developments are going to forge ahead very fast. Um, and of course, if you look at another innovation in the 1950s, the silicon chip, then of course uh, that has already transformed uh, communications um, and the way we live with internet, mobile phones and all that, and with powerful computers um, and that is still accelerating. So those two uh, technologies based on discoveries in the 1950s are still now impacting. And of course the thing which I wish I could predict but can't is are there any qualitatively new discoveries we made now which will transform the world 50 years from now uh, in the way that uh, those two 1950s discoveries have transformed our present day world. And obviously I can't predict that, but I think we should keep our minds open or at least ajar to the possibility of something really qualitatively new which will dominate the world in 2050. Well, we're nearly out of time, but um, I can't let you go without talking a little bit about the, um, you being the recent recipient of the, um, of the Templeton Prize, which people will obviously be aware has, has not been without its controversy. The prize is awarded to persons for making an exceptional contribution to investigating life's spiritual direction. So how do you interpret that? How do you, how do you think your work contributed to that? Well, that's really a question for the uh, adjudicators rather than for me, but one of the things which the Templeton Foundation has been keen to foster has been study of big fundamental questions. And I suppose few questions are bigger... <laughs> than studying the universe, which is my professional interest. Mm-hmm. And so that is perhaps uh, why I come within the criteria. Uh, but all I would say is that I'm very proud to join the distinguished and rather eclectic roll call of former winners. In fact, uh, there's a presentation ceremony here in uh, London this week, and uh, I've been specially honoured that one of the people who's come all the way from California uh, is, uh, uh, in my opinion, the greatest of the... Um, previous winners, Charlie Towns, the uh, pioneer of the Maser and Laser, who at the age of 96 is here and still going strong. And so I'm proud to be in a role call that includes people like him and Freeman Dyson and a number of other people. You must have anticipated there would be some controversy in you accepting the prize. Well, I, I think some people um, have particular perceptions of, of this, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and of course the prize does have connotations of... Uh, links between science and religion and as we know that's a controversial subject. One of the critics of accepting the prize, a prominent atheist Jerry Coyne, he asserts that Templeton's aim is to, to give credibility to religion by blurring its well demarcated border with science. 
Do you think that border even exists? I mean, that seems to me itself to be it's an ideological position to say that there is a, bo- a definite demarcation between religion and science. Well, uh, I mean, I, I'm a scientist. I have no expertise in religion. I have no religious beliefs, so I'm not qualified to comment, really. But uh, uh, I observe that there are some scientists who do have religious beliefs, uh, and uh, I am one of the scientists, and I think that the majority who take this view, who accept that there can be peaceful coexistence between science and religion, whether the scientists have their own beliefs or not. I think those who uh, stridently argue that there cannot be uh, coexistence are a minority. I don't know if you described yourself as this, or someone has described it as a, as a believer in belief. So what, what does that mean? That's not a description I would use for myself. I don't know who said that. Well, you've been described as a non-believing churchgoer then, because you you enjoy some of the cultural aspects that are that, that are around religion. For instance, you, you know you go to do even song to listen to the choir. This is sort of what I'm trying to get at with the idea of this this demarcated border. I mean, we we have grown up in a society that's that's absolutely saturated by Christianity and always has been. So it, this is why I find it interesting the idea that it's the two things are somehow separable. Do you think we can? escape from its influence, even in a cultural way? Well, I think you should distinguish the culture from the beliefs, and uh, I suppose my attitude, having been brought up in a traditional English culture, is rather like an attitude that's more common among Jews. There are many Jews, Mm -hmm. who I know, who would say they have no religious beliefs, but nonetheless they may preserve some customs and cultural, they may even light their candles on Friday night Mm -hmm. and things like that because they believe there's some virtue in continuity, etc. And so, to the same extent, I'm not one of those who would want to attack such practices. I mean, I think it would be uh, inappropriate to uh, criticise Jews who uh, follow those practices. Uh, I wouldn't want to. Um, And uh, similarly, uh, I don't think even those with no beliefs ought to criticise those who practice the uh, traditional religion of this country. You have spoken about how mainstream religion really should be seen as an ally of science in in the fight against fundamentalist religion. I mean, would that be would that be an accurate portrayal? Well, I mean, uh, let me first say that you asked me about religion, and I have no claims to any expertise sure. or knowledge of religion. But uh, I think uh, there are two things which. Um, uh, most scientists would share with uh, mainstream religions. One is an awareness of the sort of mystery and wonder of the um, of the world and of many things we can't yet explain. But also, I think we share concern about fundamentalism, extremism of all kinds. And uh, I would really see the uh, mainstream religions um, as uh, uh, being allies. We need all the allies we can muster against extremism. And I would see the Archbishop of Canterbury as being on my side, and therefore wouldn't want to rubbish him. And that's the respect in which I believe some of the strident atheists are actually uh, doing more harm than good. I think that's a fantastic point for us to end on. Martin, thank you very much for speaking to me today. Okay, good to be on the programme. You've been listening to Little Atoms. You can find details of upcoming guests at our website, littleatoms.com. The Little Atoms podcast is available on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.